almost through this little section that uh, I've been calling Righteousness Requires Reconciled Relationships. Uh, Jesus said that if our um, if we had any hope of uh, being in the kingdom, living in the kingdom, that our righteousness had to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he has given us several examples of just what that looks like, what that means for our righteousness to exceed theirs. And each one of them has been a facet of relationship. Uh, so for this morning, for uh, our righteousness to exceed that of the Pharisees, uh, it requires us to reconcile our relationships, and for this morning, that case may require us to relinquish our rights, and that's going to be the title of the message, Relinquishing Your Rights. In Matthew chapter 5, find verse 38, and we'll read down to verse 42. Verse 38 says, You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil or the evil one or an evil person, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take, uh, take thy coat, uh, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain or two. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, Turn not thou away. And now Jesus is speaking on, on rights. Right? This message reminds us of a couple of things, a little, little preview here, that, that, that Christ wants us to emphasize uh, giving as opposed to taking. Um, we're looking at what's called the lex talionis. Uh, it's found in Exodus and in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Uh, it's um, an equality between crime and punishment, and its teaching is basically don't take too much. Jesus' message here is don't give too little. Now, the lex talionis means that the punishment needs to fit the crime. Uh, its, its purpose was to curtail further crime and, and, and to prevent excessive punishment that might come from first personal vengeance or or, or from, from angry uh, retaliation. It was meant to, to curtail our propensity to seek retaliation, to seek vengeance or revenge beyond what the offense deserves. Now, in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he does, he does two things here. First, he draws the crowd's attention to the teaching of the law uh, in Leviticus and, and Exodus and Deuteronomy uh, on, on what we call reciprocal justice. The concept of reciprocal justice was not exclusively a Jewish practice. Other legal systems before this and after this and around Israel, uh, they, you know, they honored this code, uh, meaning that there needed to be a ceiling there needed to be a limitation on reciprocal uh, justice. Now, contrary to popular belief, this is not a mandate. This is not a requirement, right? If, if somebody knocks out your tooth, you are not required to knock out their tooth. It is a limitation. If you want to seek restitution, you only can knock out one tooth if your tooth has been knocked out. It's, um, 
an injury that, that, that the party might seek for a non-contractual wrongdoing. We know it as a tort, really. Um, but it's a, it's a limitation that, that, that you can't seek restitution beyond the scope of the injury. So, in other words, if somebody pokes out your eye, you're not allowed to take both of their eyes. The limit is one eye. It's not a demand. It's a limitation. So, so, so what, what it teaches, really, is, is don't take too much. The restitution, the retaliation, the revenge has a limit, okay? Don't take too much. The second thing that Jesus is drawing uh, our attention to is his teaching is, is um, well, by comparison, verses 39 down to verse 42, he shows himself as the one who did not come to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill it. Jesus takes the ceiling of the lex talionis, the limit, the punishment has to fit the crime. He takes that ceiling and he turns it and he makes it the floor. He tells them to offer twice as much as what's been asked of them. And, and in contrast, Jesus is saying, no, don't worry about uh, you know, taking too much. What you really need to worry about is don't give too little. Don't be stingy, in other words. See, people are, are really overly concerned with their, with their rights and their privileges, and there's too much interest in, in, in self and, and, and self-protecting. Now, now, this is a natural tendency of, of you know, sinful people. They're, 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 you know, they're sinners. They're self-focused. They are the most important person in their life. They, they want their rights protected. Uh, but it's also the tendency of us Christians who tend to be a little fleshly sometimes and, and, and we, we think that uh, we deserve to have uh, our rights expressed to the full extent without regard for anybody else. We want revenge and we want retaliation for people who infringe on our rights and See, if that's our chief concern, then anything that gets in the way of that becomes disposable, becomes expendable. It causes us to trample on other people. There is no room for concern for others when your priority is yourself. We saw previously that uh, this teaching had been perverted by the religious leaders. What had happened, each person was allowed to become their own judge and their own jury and their own executioner. Uh, they were allowed to use the law as a command for vengeance and revenge and retaliation. And that's not what Jesus wants us to do. It's not the way he wants us to live. Now, how do you respond to these life situations? What is at the heart of, 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 of this teaching? What is in your heart? is going to determine whether you're on one side or the other. Now this uh, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, has been consistently misapplied to personal relationships. This statement is intended to provide a principle of justice so that the punishment fits the crime. It places, uh, places a limitation again on revenge. It governs the legal relationships between people. 
this principle safeguards individuals and it safeguards society and provides an appropriate legal understanding that the punishment needs to rightly fit the crime. See, now, before you misunderstand me here, Jesus is not teaching that Christians should not exercise their legal rights. The Apostle Paul repeatedly exercised his legal rights as a Roman citizen. But the Bible teaches us that we are to exercise our rights carefully and in community. Jesus is teaching that Christians should not stand on their rights as a first and foremost foundational principle. Now, people in the United States, we are incredibly rights-driven. And here we're reminded again that being an American and being a follower of Christ are not the same thing. If you are a follower of Christ, then your patriotism must take a back seat to Christ. All right? Must take a back seat to Christ. And when being an American is in conflict with being a Christian, then you had better be faithful first and only to Christ. Now, I would much rather be a good Christian than a good patriot, but don't misunderstand me. I love my country. I do. But I love my Jesus more than I love my country. That's the way it's supposed to be. The gospel teaches us to be counter-cultural, to be in rebellion against the world system, and, and that we're to, if we are in Christ, we're to offer up all our rights to him. Now, choosing when not to insist upon our rights gives us an opportunity to bear witness of Christ, who, you know, Christ did not insist on his own rights. Christ, according to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, he humbled himself, he became obedient unto the death of the cross. It is God the Father that exalted him. And the paradox is that Christ did not insist on his own rights, but at the appropriate time was given all the rights and privileges as the Son of God. That is to be our mindset. Now here through the rest of this passage, Jesus, Jesus uses four illustrations to help us understand how uh, we're to bear witness about him by the way we live in relation to relinquishing our rights. I want you to look at verse 39. Okay, verse 39 says, But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Here we are to relinquish our rights to retaliation, relinquish our rights to revenge, and submit to injuries. Now this little verse has also been misinterpreted and misapplied. It has been used to support passivism and conscientious objection. It's been used uh, to, to support lawlessness and anarchy. Tolstoy, the Russian writer, based his book War and Peace on this passage. His, his, his thesis was that uh, the elimination of police and military and other forms of authority would lead to a utopian society. That's not actually what happens. Jesus tells us about the rights we must be willing to give up 
in service to him. Now, this does not teach that we are to let evil run rampant. It does not mean you disengage from fighting sin in all its forms. The church is to resist evil. Believers must resist it in our personal lives and in the world. Jesus is referring to evil people who harm us. We are not to be characterized by vengeful retaliation. We are to overcome someone's evil towards us personally with good. Now, Jesus is the ultimate example of somebody who turned the other cheek. But this does not, though, imply that we're to let our families be murdered while we do nothing. That great philosopher Malcolm Reynolds said that if someone tries to kill you, you can try to kill them right back. Scripture teaches self-protection. You have the right to protect your life. This is not what this is. This is the, the, the wrong protection. It's the wrong protection of your pride. He is not saying not to take a stand against evil. He is speaking of personal retaliation. See, we're, we're tempted to get more than just even when somebody wrongs us. We want to get ahead when we're wronged. And, and vengeance belongs to God. And, 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 and God's standard is that if your enemy is hungry, you give him food to eat. And if he's thirsty, you give him water to drink. And in so doing this, then you'll heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. We think, boy, when we do good to our enemies, boy, we're really socking it to them. But that's not what that means. The heaping the coals of fire, that's a blessing. It pictures giving to your enemy more than they need, more than they ask for, and by so doing, you show the love of Jesus to them. Now, what is Jesus not saying? He is not saying that we don't have the right to be treated with dignity and respect. He is not saying that we don't have the right to be treated with consideration. His emphasis is on our reaction when we are mistreated. Jesus says to turn the other cheek. Jesus is not teaching us to be undiscerning. That's not what he's doing. He's, he's, he's given us a principle, a kingdom principle for his children to live by. Jesus particularly mentions the right cheek because a slap on the right cheek in this culture would have been a backhanded slap and it would have been the grossest of insults. The principle is that we are to allow them, the world, our enemies, to insult us and we're al to, to allow them to demean us without retaliation. And by so doing, we disarm them. We give them a glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ in us. This is a great biblical tactic to, to, to let evil exhaust itself until it realizes it cannot get the best of us. See, in, in Jewish society, slapping was the most demeaning and contemptuous thing that you could do to somebody. 
It was an attack on somebody's dignity. It was an attack on somebody's pride. It caused shame. It caused humiliation. That is why we use the phrase, man, that was a slap in the face. This is where that comes from. It's an attack on somebody's honor. It's a terrible personal indignity. And turning the other cheek means to have a non-avenging, non-retaliatory, humble, and gentle spirit. Jesus doesn't teach what what Jesus doesn't model. He resisted evil towards others, but he did not resist it towards himself. Peter says, 1 Peter 2, verse 23, he says, "Who uh, Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Now, now, psychologists will tell us that, that violence is born of, of weakness. It's not born of strength. Um, it's a strong man who can love and suffer hurt. It's the weak man who thinks only of themselves and hurts others to protect themselves. He hurts others, and then he runs away to protect himself. That's what the weak do. But but here, turning the other cheek, we must give up our right of vengeful retaliation for personal insults. This doesn't mean we should forego the protection the law gives us. It's not what it means. It does mean that we forego the vengeful retaliation when our poor little pride gets a boo-boo we turn the other cheek that's what that means and I'll tell you as human as any one of you are that it takes a direct work of the Holy Spirit of God to back away allow it to happen and not defend your pride to somebody else but that's what scripture requires Look at verse 40 for number 2. Verse 40 says, And if any man will sue thee at the law, take away thy thy coat. Let him have thy cloak also. Here it's we are to relinquish our rights to security. Relinquish our rights to security and submit your personal property. Now now this, this can hit close to home because... One of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not steal, which presupposes our right to own personal property, that things can belong to us. But we need to be willing to give up those things that make us feel secure, especially if it'll keep hard feelings from developing between another believer. We are to go beyond the fair legal agreement to show our regrets over, over the disappointment. This also shows that we don't have bitter, resentful feelings. It's, it's, it's better to be defrauded. It's better to take the hit than to be spiteful or revengeful. Let me explain this, this coat and cloak. The, the, there was this, this inner shirt. It, it was type of a tunic worn as an undergarment it would look like a kind of a long sleeve t-shirt that went kind of down below the knees it was the inner garment the one that was worn closest to to the skin and 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 the coat was the outer garment 
that would also serve as, as your blanket when, when you slept at night. Now, the law did not allow the outer garment to be taken from a person since it was, was their protection from the cold, but, uh, you know, they could sue you for your, for your inner garment there. This does not refer to, to, to someone who, who, who takes it by force. It does not refer to, to a thief, all right, stealing this from you, but it refers to someone who has a legitimate claim to sue you. We have a person who is trying to take every advantage of the law, and Jesus is saying that it would be better to suffer the loss than to have an attitude of revenge. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 7 tells us that we are better off being taken advantage of than we are bringing shame to the name of Christ. The thing we normally think gives us security really, really doesn't, though. I mean, whether they are homes or cars or clothes or food, retirement, insurance policies. For the believer, that's not where our security is. And all these things can be taken away so quickly and with no warning. If our security is in that kind of thing, we're going to be sorely disappointed. The Lord supplies everything we need. So we don't have to guard. We don't have to guard the stuff we think we own. We don't have to hold on tightly to our stuff with some misguided sense of jealousy. We're to risk sacrificing the right of material security if doing that will honor God. We know what the scripture says. That God will meet all our needs. He knows what we're going through. He knows what's going on in our life. We, you know, if, if, if we give to someone who really has need and, and, and we give it properly motivated out of a pure heart, something that, that you need, I mean, if you've been saved very long, you've seen it happen, God always supplies the needs that you have when you hold your stuff with open hands instead of clenched fists. God will see what your need is, and that need will not go unmet. But in responding to a person of greed, the default reaction of the human heart is typically not one of offering them your stuff. Not typically. To be able to freely give of our possessions is, is, is beautifully disarming to people who are not Christians. Jesus draws out an expression of the law that that also reveals how much we hold on to our possessions. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Christ working in us is that it frees us from this obsession with material things. It enables us to be unreasonably generous. We must loosely hold on to the things of the world. Because the tighter you hold on to them, the more in bondage you are to them. See, Matthew Henry says this about this verse. He says the sum of it all is that Christians must not be litigious. Small injuries must be submitted to and notice taken of them. And if the injury be such as requires us to seek reparation, it must be for the good end and without thought of revenge. Jesus says it's stuff. It is only 
stuff. Just let it go. If it helps the relationship, let it go. If it gives you the opportunity to speak Christ into their life, let the stuff go. Look at verse 41 for number 3. Verse 41 says, And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain or two. Here we see that we're to relinquish our right to personal liberty. Relinquish our right to personal liberty and submit to burdens imposed. See, God's original plan was for everyone to be free. Slavery and bondage of any type was, was, was to not exist, but along came sin. And then a little while after that, along came Roman law. A soldier could force a civilian to carry his pack a mile, a thousand paces. Now, this would cause <laughs> great inconvenience. and meant that they had to carry items for those who were oppressing them. Remember, as Jesus made his way to, to, to Golgotha, Simon of Cyrene was pressed into service. He had to carry Jesus' cross. And here, Jesus says, to be willing to give up your right to your time. Don't resent it when people ask you to do things that take your time. Do it with a cheerful heart, knowing that God is looking. Give up your right to money and property. Everything we have belongs to God anyways, so, so, so don't turn away those who, who, who need genuine help. Be willing to help as soon as you know that there's a need. Do it with, with, with generosity. Do it with cheerfulness. Don't do it grudgingly. See, now, now this would raise the eyebrows. Of, of, of the hearers there on the mount, not just the disciples, but the crowd that would gather around them. And some of them might even do the Spock eyebrow, you know, the one thing up, like, what are you talking about here? These, these are Romans. They're our enemy. They hate us. When we raise a ruckus, they kill us. We want them gone. We want them out of here. And you want me to go another thousand paces with this guy? Jesus is saying here that if you're asked to help to carry a burden, then, then our rights should never come into play. In fact, what Jesus is teaching is that we should be willing to go above and beyond the requirement, the call of duty. Our primary concern is people reaching them with the love of Christ, the gospel of Christ. And if it means that I have to accept some burden to do that, then I'm to be willing to take that burden. There needs to be a readiness to submit to unreasonable demands of whatever kind rather than raise a ruckus and all the problems that come from ruckus raising. See, remember that the soldier in this scenario is by definition the enemy. He's a soldier, a Roman soldier, occupying your country and putting his burden on your back again. And the gospel teaches us to serve our enemies by pointing them to Christ. 
This is the same principle that Paul used in his ministry as a servant for Christ's sake, uh, and it's likely that this disposition he had was the secret to, to, to his fruitfulness. See, Jesus is speaking about denial of personal liberty because the soldier of the Roman occupying army, I mean, he could, I mean, legally he was allowed to conscript an, conscript an individual to, to carry his pack for him. The limit of the law, the limit of the conscription was the mile, the thousand paces. So a willingness, now think about this. The Roman soldier knows he's hated. The Roman soldier knows he is despised. He doesn't care, but he knows. And he knows that Jewish fella carrying that pack, I mean, they had marks on the road, so they knew exactly when they could stop. Nope, I've gone my mile, I've gone my thousand paces, I'm done, you find somebody else. Okay, they were very letter of the law. But to have one of them willingly, without complaining, without uh, the snide remarks, voluntarily go another thousand paces would completely disarm that Roman soldier. You would, you would have the opportunity to explain your rebellious behavior of love and sacrifice to someone who, who you otherwise would never have an opportunity to share Christ with. Do you see that? Going that extra mile doing the excessive kindness opens them up to listen about why you are so different when everybody else in the world will go their thousand paces and not a step more but you do what's up with that what makes you different why are you willing to do the extra work what makes you different from all my friends? And you've got opportunity to speak the gospel. You may be called to go and be above and beyond the call of duty, but then what do you do? You get up, you accept the burden that's imposed, and with all the effort, you show Jesus off. You make him look big and you make him look glorious in the doing of that task. That is going the extra mile. Now there's one more. Verse 42. I want you to look at it. It says, Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Here on number four, so relinquish your right to personal gain relinquish your right to personal gain and submit to the needs of others. Now, as with all parts of the word of God, we need some discernment. This verse does not mean that we just blindly give everything away. So you can all relax. Okay? It's, it's okay. You can keep some of your stuff. All right? We're called to be good stewards of what God's entrusted us. We don't really own anything. We're just kind of managers of what God has given us. 
Uh, in fact, we know what the Bible teaches, that, that if a person is not, you know, if, if, if he's able to work, but chooses not to work and provide for himself and his family, then scripture says he doesn't eat. And, and then we're really under no obligation to help him. You know, the consequences of not eating should motivate them to change their behavior and get a job and work. But when someone has a genuine need, though, they cannot possibly get it themselves, then we as believers should be willing to step in and provide for them to the best of our ability. Jesus is quite literally calling us to value relationships supremely and regard possessions as nothing. Jesus is not teaching us to disregard wisdom and disregard understanding. Proverbs also teaches us to be wise and discerning with the money that God gives us to manage. Jesus is addressing the motivation of the heart. And sometimes it's too easy for us to look at the passages of Scripture uh, that talk about the wisdom of money and, and its use and use that as, as an excuse to be ungenerous. We use those portions that say we have to be wise with our money as an excuse just to keep it for ourselves. I think we should prefer to, to risk looking foolish in our generosity even while we try to be discerning and wise. We must be careful not to give too little. Jesus is calling us to share what God has given us. We are, we are to hold what God has given us again with open hands, free from the clinging influence of, 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 of wealth and possessions so that we can be truly free from those things. Our money and possessions must not be our idol. They're tools to be used for the kingdom of God. Otherwise, they will end up owning you. You will be in bondage to them. 1 John 3.17 says, But whoso hath this world's goods, and seeing his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? How can God's love indwell you when you see another believer in need and you ignore it? How does God's love dwell in you? Well, that's not a rhetorical question. I mean, it needs an answer. Uh, it, it, this kind of thing, well, you know, it probably can't. It doesn't mean you lose your salvation every time you don't help somebody. But it means God's love is not abounding in you. God's love is not at home and comfortable in you. And, and, and the evidence of it being so is, is that you are generous and you are open-handed and you are willing to meet the needs of others, even to the sacrifice or hurt of yourself. Now, let's see if we can wrap this up. All God's people said, Whew, right? Living like this means that our heart is set on reaching the lost, help, wanting to, to help heal the hurting around us, regardless of the consequences, personal cost. 
God has a purpose for our lives, and that purpose is to try to win as many people to Christ as we can. And, and, and we have a choice to make when, when we're wronged. We can seek revenge ourselves, or we can show mercy. There's times in which we will need to assert our rights, but there are times, uh, you know, like, like Paul did to, to pre- preserve his life, we, we need to think long and hard before we, we step out and retaliate for a wrong that is done to us. See, we are called by Christ to be different, to be distinct from the world. And and that is how Jesus expects his kingdom people to live. We're to obey him. So, So how do you react the next time you feel like you've been mistreated? Jesus's words change our focus from, you know, the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the the restricting retaliation to to releasing our love for the people around us. See, Jesus both demands and he supplies the courage to be different like this. We are to rebel against the world system, and we rebel against the world system by being like Jesus. Jesus changes the economics of our, uh, of our relationships. Instead of saying, you have what I need, so I will take it from you, we now say, I have what you need, I will give it to you. Instead of being frustrated by the limitations of retribution, we become excited about the unlimited opportunities to show God's love, to to share Christ by our actions, and then also share Christ by our words. Instead of using retaliation to balance the scales, we use love to ensure that the good outweighs the bad. We don't want the scales balanced. We want there to be more good than there is evil. And the Christian life is a life that is, that is out of sync with the world. All right? It's a life that, that demands that we be not conformed to this world. It's a, it's, it's a life that demands that we be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's a life that declares that if, any was, if, if anyone's in Christ, they are, they are new creatures, new creations. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. In effect, new life in Christ, that life he gives, it, it requires that we pursue this new way of living. You know, if, if we're in Christ, we've trusted Christ, we're one of his, we, we are of the kingdom of God. Right? That's where our citizenship lies, in, in the kingdom. And, and we are citizens of heaven, as Philippians says. And, and, and his citizens are different than everybody else. We live different. We, we act different. We react different. We do life different because we put people above our own hurt. We put people above our own gain. We put people above our own pride. That's different. That's the way Jesus wants us to live. 
So the only question I have left for you is, is that the way you live? Do you live for the kingdom? Or do you live for yourself? Stand with your heads bowed, eyes closed, if you don't mind. As we go to the Lord in prayer, Father, we want to thank you for this time in your word. And it is, Father, we understand, we, we know, and hopefully we also believe that it runs contrary to the world system. And living like this sets us apart. It makes us look oftentimes peculiar. But Father, we would much rather be accepted by you and rejected by the world than accepted by the world and condemned by you. And Father, we do absolutely need your Holy Spirit's help, his empowerment, his work in us to change our mindset so that we so that we live contrary to the world. Father, I pray, as was mentioned earlier in chapter 5, that we are effective as salt and that we are effective as light. We recognize that, that we need you to do this work in us, so please do this work in us to make us like Jesus, effective citizens of your kingdom, so that others will be drawn to you because by this we have lifted Christ up and he said that if he be lifted up, he'll draw men to himself. Father, that's what we want, to, to, to have the way we live for you draw attention of other people, to use it as a door, an opportunity to explain the difference that you've made in us. Lord, if we try this on our own, we're going to fail. you've promised that if we belong to you you are uh, extremely committed to seeing us shaped into the image of Christ as we submit ourselves to you father we look forward to that work in us for it's in Jesus name we pray amen Mike could you come ahead